Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Banana Bag Podcast. A banana bag is another name for an IV bag filled with nutrients and vitamins. It's kind of like a super boost for your body. In the same way, we hope this podcast can be a super boost for you, empowering both healthcare professionals, patients, but also anyone interested in learning more about the experiences in our healthcare system. Follow us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. All right, today is a special day. I'm talking to Lindsay, a wife and mother of Bennett and Gideon, about her experience with infant life and death. When Lindsay was still pregnant with Gideon, Gideon was diagnosed with acrania. Acrania is a congenital disorder where the baby is missing the top part of the skull. After a diagnosis like this, the baby isn't expected to live long. The baby will most likely die in womb or shortly after birth. It's a very serious, honest, and heartfelt conversation. And as I mentioned in the podcast over and over again, I'm incredibly thankful that she was willing to share hers and Gideon's story with us. I hope it will not only give us a better understanding of what people go through when they go through this type of thing, but also help mothers who are going through something similar. Throughout the conversation, I kind of just let Lindsay take the lead. I wanted her to talk about what she felt comfortable talking about, and I didn't interrupt much. I didn't really feel the need to. She talks about hers and Gideon's story, interactions with healthcare workers that encouraged her, and some interactions that were difficult. She also gives recommendations for other mothers who are going through a similar situation, and much more. I hope this episode really increases your understanding of this type of situation. And don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for joining me today. I just wanted to let you know that this is yours and Gideon's story, and whatever you feel like it's important to say, it's up to you. Okay, that sounds good, because yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm probably going to go into a lot of detail, so if this is, like, way too long, I'm, like, not offended if you have to, like, cut stuff out. That's no problem at all. I think the best place to start would be with yours and Gideon's story, wherever you feel that begins. Yeah, where to start? (laughs) Um, well, I'll start in November of 2019. For a little bit of context first, I guess, um, we have my husband, Jason, and I, we have a, a two-year-old son, Bennett. And so when we decided to start trying again, Bennett was about a year old, and we always knew that we wanted our kids to be rather close in age. And so we decided to start trying and thought, oh, they'll be like about 18 months apart. And we got pregnant pretty quickly. Uh, It was very surprising to both of us. And so we were like, okay, all right, 18 month age gap, we can do this. So (laughs) um, we announced our family over Thanksgiving. It was really exciting. And then extended family on Christmas. And, you know, it was still early, like first trimester. But I mean, I was having morning sickness and all of those good indicators. And so it, it felt pretty normal, honestly, as far as pregnancy goes. And so after Christmas, we were really looking forward to that first OB appointment where they do the uh, heartbeat and and uh, all that good stuff. So we, we did that and was confirmed that, yep, there's a baby in there and there's a heartbeat. And it was just a really joyful time. It just felt like 2020 was going to be our year. Mm-hmm. It was We were going to be adding a baby to the family. And uh, I mean, little did we know how much 2020 was going to have in store, even just like in the world. But yeah, so 
My first ultrasound was scheduled for late January. I was about 11 weeks along at that point. That ultrasound was really normal. When they were scanning him, you know, he, he looked like a perfect baby. I mean, he he looked like he had a full head and he was kicking and stretching. And I mean, it was, it was just crazy. Even at just 11 weeks, how, how active and how perfect he looked. And so left that appointment just feeling really good. And and at that point, you know, I know that most friends and, and people kind of announce as they're going into the second trimester at 13 weeks. But after that ultrasound at 11 weeks, we, we just kind of felt like, all right, well, that's that's all we need to know. So let's let's announce. So we posted, if not that day, I think it was like just a day or two after that 11 week ultrasound announcing that we were pregnant. We were so excited, adding a second baby to the family. Bennett was going to be a big brother. And so just like a couple days, I think it was like three days after that ultrasound, we got a phone call. And it was strange because I'd never gotten a follow-up phone call mm. from an ultrasound, or, or at least not that I can remember, just because they were all so standard. But that phone call, the nurse on the line sounded pretty casual. She said, hey, like we we didn't get a great look at baby's head. And so doctor just wants to double check some stuff. So um, we're going to wait a couple weeks and let the baby grow a little bit. And we want you to come back for for a 14-week ultrasound, and we will be sending you to a maternal fetal medicine specialist for that ultrasound. Mm. And at the time, I was just kind of like, okay, like it, it was interesting because I'm I'm a natural worrier. And so I'm kind of surprised that I wasn't worried at the time. I'd had some good friends who had also had ultrasounds flagged for whatever reason, but then at the follow-up ultrasound, everything was fine. And so I just kind of thought, all right, the doctors just have to kind of dot their I's and cross their T's. And this is protocol if they can't get a perfect look at everything and check off the check box. And so I just was kind of expecting everything to still be okay mm -hmm. going into that appointment. So going into that, you know, Jason came with me. That was right at the end of January's tail end. It was January 28 when we finally had that 14-week ultrasound. And I started to feel butterflies, but I kind of chalked it up more to just like excitement to see our baby again. I was mm -hmm. just kind of thinking, oh, hey, you know, the at least we get a an, another ultrasound out of this. We can see our baby again and see how much he's grown. In the back of my mind, I did kind of think, you know, what if? But honestly, I mean, the, the what if that I was thinking was, oh, well, what if my baby has down syndrome but then i was like mm -hmm. well that's that's okay we'll figure it out we'll we'll love this baby and so if, if if there was anything i was preparing for it was for that i i couldn't fathom what was going to happen and so we went in and the nurse who or, or the ultrasound tech <laughs> i think is what they're called she took us back and and she was a very um sweet lady just very chipper and bright and had a really positive energy so that just kind of put me at ease and and she was explaining that in their particular office. I don't know if it's just because the ultrasound techs at the MFM office have particular training or or what that is, but they are able, she was saying that she would be able to tell us in the ultrasound if everything was looking good and kind of describe what she was seeing. So I was like, oh, okay, so like we'll have the ultrasound and I'll, I'll get to hear from her and then we'll go home. That's kind of what I was thinking. She started the ultrasound and was kind of moving the wand around pretty pretty hard trying to get some good looks at baby's head and and I was just more in the moment I was just loving that oh he's stretching again he's kicking so much and and he was he really was moving around a ton and she kept saying oh he's it's 
kind of hard to get a good read. After a little while, she said, you know what? I'm not really getting a great read on his head. I'm going to step out. Why don't you go like go to the bathroom and we'll do and I, I don't remember what it's called, but the intervaginal ultrasound. A transvaginal ultrasound, I think is what they're called. Which I thought was kind of weird. I was like 14 weeks. I feel like I should be far enough along to not need that. But I was like, okay, fine. That's okay. And and she said, and I'm going to bring the um, the specialist in. I did think that that was kind of weird because she had said she might not need, like she could just tell us if everything's fine. But even then, I think that I was still just so intent on everything's fine, everything's fine, that I just didn't even really kind of pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So I went to the bathroom, came back, my husband was waiting for me, and we we waited in that room for what felt like a really long time. I have no idea how long it actually was, but we were just waiting for a really long time for the ultrasound tech and the specialist to come back. So when they finally did, the mood shifted. Mm. All of a sudden, when they came in, she, she wasn't peppy and happy anymore and he it was very serious but I still didn't pick up on it I still was like no everything's good I think I was kind of not allowing myself to sort of pick up on some cues and so started the intravaginal ultrasound and it definitely did give a better view of our baby's head all of a sudden the specialist was saying words that just were totally different he was saying and it was almost like he was talking to the ultrasound tech and not to me but he was saying you see here there's a skull missing there's the brain is exposed there's no skull and then he kind of did click of his tongue he was like mm, yeah that's I'm I'm so sorry it's what we call incompatible with life mm -hmm. it's a crania at that point everything else gets really foggy mm -hmm. it almost felt like being underwater where you aren't recognizing full sentences anymore. It was just snippets of words here and there, like kind of coming into my consciousness of not compatible with life, a crania, no skull cap. All I remember is the, the ultrasound tech as she had sort of the wand <laughs> in me doing the ultrasound. She was also stroking my knee at the same time. And my husband, Jason, was next to me holding my hand and just gripping so tight. I know that the specialist gave us some kind of instruction on like follow up or next steps or something. I honestly couldn't tell you what he said. Mm. Um, I have no idea. All I know is that all of a sudden the lights were back on and I was being helped sit up and the ultrasound tech was saying, you know, we'll give you a while to get dressed and you, you don't have to check out. You guys can just go. Then they left the room and it was just me and Jason and I that that was the worst day of my life I would say was finding out that my baby was going to die mm -hmm. I fell on Jason and was just gripping he was wearing a sweatshirt and I was gripping his sweatshirt just sobbing and feeling like if I let go of his sweatshirt I'm going to fall on the ground I literally could not support myself um, we were just in that room. I don't know for how long. Um, eventually, somehow, I got my clothes back on out of the ultrasound gown. The walking out to the parking lot, I was just numb. I don't remember much of just getting in the car and starting to drive. And I mean, we didn't say anything. 
where we lived, we lived in rural Indiana at the time. And so the hospital was 45 minutes away. All of our appointments were a 45 minute drive one way. And so we had a long drive in the car. And um, eventually I know that Jason said something about we, we need to call our parents. And so I called my mom first and she she was the only one that I ended up talking to directly and telling the news. Ironically, uh, my mom volunteers at a pregnancy crisis center. Mm. And so she was there volunteering up in Michigan. And so she stepped away from her volunteering to take my phone call. and, And she knew that I had an ultrasound that day to follow up. When she answered the phone, I was just crying on the other end. And she knew the first words I said to her were, mom, my baby's going to die. She just said, Lindsay, no, no. And she just started crying. And we just cried on the phone. It was really hard. I explained what the doctor said and just asked her to tell the rest of the family. I knew that I I couldn't handle having that conversation 20 times. You know, she took care of it and told my sisters and my dad and grandparents. And I just knew that I couldn't. I didn't even realize that, like, how many times you would have to say it. Yeah, it just, it it was going to be impossible. So I told my mom, and Jason called his mom and told her later that night, I just started looking up, like, what is a crania? And a, a crania, so what, what our baby had was basically a precursor to anencephaly. So a crania is when the brain is present, but the skull cap is missing. So the top of the head has no skull bone. And so over time, it's a combination of the the little brain stops growing and also has some deterioration or shrinking. Then by the time the baby is born, it's anencephaly where uh, the skull cap is missing and there's little to no brain matter. That's why on the ultrasound, our baby looked like he had a full round head is because his little brain was still there and probably stopped growing around 15 weeks by the specialist estimations. We had the diagnosis confirmed at 15 weeks, so we had another ultrasound the week after, but that time we went to Riley Children's Hospital down in Indianapolis and confirmed it there. And at that point, the specialists that we met with at Riley Children's Hospital kind of walked us through a bit more of the tangible what this is going to look like. So that's when we asked our questions, you know, is our baby in any pain? And, you know, the specialist assured me, absolutely not. He's in no pain. Oh, that's also when we found out that he's a boy. Uh-huh. That 15 weeks, found out that we were having a little boy, which was so bittersweet because we were so excited for Bennett to have a little brother and also had to begin grieving the fact that he was never going to grow up with that brother. But we found out he's a little boy. We named him Gideon Judah. And Gideon means warrior. And Judah, his middle name, means praise. That's beautiful. Yeah. We we chose that name very intentionally. And a big reason for that is because we're, we're Christians, we're believers. It, it was important to us that our baby bear a name that indicates the importance of our faith on this journey and the importance of praising God in the middle of just an intense storm and just the fact that he's our little warrior. <laughs> I mean, he was such a, a fighter the whole time to even make it to 15 weeks. I mean, they estimate that so many babies who have neurotube defects end up passing in the first trimester, often very, very early. And so, I mean, just even the fact that he was, you know, at 15 weeks was just amazing to us. 
after that 15 weeks, we just kind of proceeded. We knew that we were going to continue with the pregnancy, which was another discussion that we had to have with specialists. Mm -hmm. And the specialists that I spoke with, they definitely didn't feel like they were pressuring us either way. And they felt they were very supportive of our decision to continue with the pregnancy because he's our baby. He's a little person. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for whatever time we were going to have with him, we were going to enjoy that and enjoy him and love him even as we were grieving. That was just very important to us. The next several months, February, March, April, May, June. I mean, it was it was five months of pregnancy after that. And honestly, the first two to three weeks of February after all of those initial diagnostic appointments are a fog. I think, honestly, I just did a lot of sitting on the couch and crying and then getting up and making my toddler lunch and then going back and crying and being surrounded by laundry and dirty dishes. And I had some amazing friends who stepped up and brought us meals and, you know, took care of my toddler and, you know, took him out on little play dates when I just, I I needed time to process and to really kind of grieve those really initial intense moments. I'm glad you were able to recognize that for yourself and that need and that you had those people there during that time. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was very amazing to see how our closest people who we told initially kind of rallied around us. After a while, we did choose to share more publicly. And that was amazing, too, because then from that point, people and friends who we hadn't spoken to in years, people who lived across the country, just scattered across the U.S. and even around the world. I mean, my husband is Korean. He grew up in Israel and South Korea before moving to the States in in eighth grade. And so he has, you know, a bunch of family friends from around the world who were just reaching out to us and saying that they were praying for us. That was just really humbling to see because we just, we needed it. We needed it so bad. Moving on to March, obviously, was COVID. That definitely put so a twist on that, things, I'm sure. Yeah, you know. And it was very interesting to see because as as COVID-19 came, became sort of the thing in the news and in society, it was a very strange, surreal feeling for us because it wasn't the biggest and loudest thing in our world at the time. Mm-hmm. I was in the middle of grieving and processing and trying to soak up time with my unborn baby. And so mm-hmm. it was very interesting to see how because of COVID, we actually got a lot more time just home as Mm. a little family with just me and Jason and Bennett. Jason was working from home a lot more. He was working as a hall director at the time for Indiana Wesleyan University. And so we were living in the student dorms in a hall director apartment. So he already could work a lot from home, but obviously COVID just made that 10 times more. So we just had a lot of time together and it was really sweet. I really kind of savored that time and and we were so intent on making memories with Gideon. So, you know, when we would do our, you know, mask up and go on a Chipotle run as a little family, we would take pictures with, you know, Gideon and the baby bump uh, with with our little family at Chipotle, you know, it was like, or going on stroller walks and seeing the sunset, like we were just taking pictures of everything just because this was the time that we had with Gideon. And even just the holidays that came up, you know, Father's Day, Mother's Day, 
that was the only Father's Day that Jason had with Gideon. That was the only Mother's Day that I had with Gideon. So we, we really tried to soak up that time and just be so intentional about talking to him and reading with him and taking pictures and, and just doing things at that time to, to treasure his memory. So that was sweet. The few weeks before Gideon's birth, we had another anatomy scan at 22 weeks. And with babies who have a crania and or an encephaly, there can be other complications that present themselves. And so they were kind of looking to see if there was anything else that we needed to be aware of for Gideon's health. And there was honestly nothing. I mean, he was perfect. His lungs, his heart, everything else I mean, he was just beautiful. We enjoyed the anatomy scan. <laughs> and then we had another ultrasound at 32 weeks on June 1st. And that was the first time that something else came up. So the normal amount of amniotic fluid around a baby at that point is around between 8 and 25 centimeters of amniotic fluid. And I had 44 centimeters of fluid. Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, it, it's so crazy to even say it out loud. Um, I had... It's crazy for me to hear. Yeah, it? right. On the healthcare side. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I It turns out I had developed polyhydramnios and it happens in 30, around 30% uh, I think it's a little less of anencephaly cases. My OB said that it was it was the most fluid that he had ever seen. And he's been in practice for, I don't even know, decades. That kind of told me, oh, this is serious. And I, I hadn't even really realized how big I was getting at that point. You started point. measuring um, weeks ahead, right? Oh, yeah. I was, let's see, I was nine weeks ahead at that point. I was 32 weeks along gestationally, and I was measuring at 41 weeks gestation. Wow. At that point, there was a high risk of early labor and my OB said that there was no way I was getting even close to my due date of July 27. He didn't want my lungs to get overcrowded. That was the big concern mm -hmm. at that point. But otherwise, Gideon was measuring at two and a half pounds at 32 weeks and was otherwise doing good. So let's see. On June 2nd, I had another meeting, but this time with an entire hospital care team. So it was my OB, palliative care, the NICU team, nursing, and a chaplain. Essentially, they were my care team and Gideon's care team. And we we met to kind of write out the birth plan and figure out what needed to happen. What were my wishes? What were Jason's wishes for caring for Gideon for his delivery and birth? And so we opted for comfort care. We knew that it was really the only decision or at least the only decision that kind of made sense from what the medical team was recommending because hmm. the, the prognosis was not good. But it was hard emotionally as a mother to to say to a hospital care team not to resuscitate your baby. Oh, that was just yeah. really, really hard. And I mean, they knew and were on board and were expecting it, I'm sure. But it was just, it was really hard to have to say it out loud. We talked through things like postponing, weighing and measuring him. We just, we just wanted to hold him. We didn't want to lose any time at all once he was born, just 
used for weighing and measuring and all that stuff. We knew that that could happen later. Another decision that we had to make for that meeting was if we wanted him to be wearing a hat when we met him, which kind of weighs heavy on moms with babies who have anencephaly because, you know, their little skull cap is exposed. And so you can typically uh, see brain matter and, you know, not all parents, that's not how all parents want to remember their baby. And that's kind of what I was feeling. Jason felt differently. He he wanted to be able to see all of Gideon at least once just to fully embrace his full image of who he is. I, on the other hand, felt like I wanted to remember him. And to me, his the exposed part of his head didn't define him. And so I, mm-hmm. I really didn't have any desire to see the exposed part of his head. And so we decided that we would have the medical team just put a hat on him really quick after he was born and hand him right to us. And that would be our meeting him with a hat on. And then eventually Jason could take his hat off. And then at that time, I could sort of decide in the moment if if I felt like it was right. But that was something else that we had to discuss. Mm -hmm. We made a list of items that we wanted to get from the hospital team to bring home. We wanted, you know, a lock of Gideon's hair. I loved his hair. So we wanted a lock of hair. We wanted his ID band, his handprints and footprints and molds and just all this stuff. We had a little list of things. And the final thing that we wanted in our faith denomination, we do infant dedication rather than infant baptism. And so we really wanted to dedicate Gideon to the Lord in the hospital. And so uh, the hospital chaplain, obviously because of COVID, we couldn't have our home pastor come and do the dedication for us. So we worked with the hospital chaplain and he was amazing and so compassionate and so understanding. And so we did that as well as part of the meeting was discussed with the chaplain, a dedication for Gideon. That was that meeting. And at the very end, just because we had voiced that our faith and our relationship with Jesus is important to us, the chaplain asked if they could pray for us at the end of the meeting. And it really meant a lot to us that they were willing to do that and sort of recognize what we needed holistically and not just medically. So that meant a lot to us. Mm. Just a couple days after that meeting, I had another appointment with my OB. He wanted to see me again at 33 weeks just because it was concerning the polyhydramnios development. It wasn't an ultrasound. It was just measuring my uterus. And at that point, I had gone from measuring nine weeks ahead at 32 weeks gestation to measuring 16 weeks ahead at 33 weeks gestation. It, it, it was shocking. I, I could barely even process what that meant. How um, are you feeling? I Almost like a body dysmorphia where you don't even realize what is happening to your body because it just feels so unbelievable. I knew that I had been sore and achy, but to hear that I was measuring at 49 weeks gestation when I was only 33 weeks along, my mind just couldn't even wrap my head around it. And at that point, I was getting I, I was getting scared for Gideon because, you know, we knew that we would most likely not be able to take him home because most babies with anencephaly pass within 24 hours of birth. But our biggest desire was to meet him living Mm. for whatever amount of time we had with him this side of heaven. And so my doctor was saying that with the buildup of amniotic fluid, it was putting a lot of pressure on him and it was increasing his chance of dying before delivery. Mm. And so... We scheduled a C-section, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit, but we scheduled a C-section for Tuesday, June 16. 
which was significantly earlier than what I was originally thinking of like early. You guys were originally thinking later July and then they moved it to early yeah. July and now it's mid-June. Yeah, it just it, it moved up so fast and it felt like we already had so little time and it felt like our timeline was just cut even shorter. And as we were leaving that appointment, my OB said, I wouldn't be surprised if you go into labor before Tuesday because also with that pressure on my cervix, he was saying that it could just send me into early labor. And so that was just very overwhelming. There were a lot of tears shed after that appointment. Suddenly we were having to pack a hospital bag and call family and tell them we were going to be both meeting and saying goodbye to Gideon the following week. Mm. And that was really, really hard. I do have to say that this whole time, this whole this whole phase of the pregnancy, Gideon had made himself very known with his <laughs> kicks and punches. And he he really liked kicking my upper left hand side of my belly. And and he would kick so hard that he actually bruised me <laughs> in, in ways that Bennett never did. And and that was just funny almost because it it really kind of started to show us his little personality. He's oh, a warrior. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was so feisty and so spunky. So that was always sort of present in those, you know, late second trimester, early third trimester conversations. We would be having to talk about all of these things related to Gideon's passing and preparing for that and ordering his casket and funeral arrangements. And we were doing all of those things while I could feel him kicking inside of me. Uh I mean, there were so many times where I would just need a break from the conversation. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I would just go into a room and just wrap my arms around my belly and just cry and just hold him and talk to him and sing to him. And I would almost imagine that he had actually already been born and that he was healthy and that he was just wrapped in a little baby sling up against my belly. And all of his kicks were just him like twitching in his sleep. Kind of feels like Um, his kicks were him talking back to you. Oh, totally. It totally was. There were some really funny moments of, I mean, Bennett like putting his hand on my belly and Bennett didn't understand anything that was going on. And then Gideon would kick Bennett's little hand or (laughs) Jason would be talking to him and Gideon would start kicking and it almost like to say, you know, hi, daddy. And it was just so, so sweet to feel like, you know, we don't have to wait until he's born to start making memories with our baby. You know, he's he's still a person. There's just literally skin separating us. So going to getting ready for the hospital, that was very surreal. There were times where it kind of felt like we were just going through the motions because I couldn't process all of the emotions that I was feeling in that moment of packing his hospital bag. The contrasting emotions of being so excited to meet this little baby who I've been picturing for months and at the same time knowing that his birthday was also likely going to be the day that he died. Another thing that we had discussed with my OB was whether to do a C-section or vaginal delivery, and I prompted the conversation because although Bennett had been born 
vaginally. I hadn't needed a C-section for him. I was seeing in the anencephaly mom support groups that I was a part of on social media that there are some studies and statistics done that babies with anencephaly who are born via C-section have a significantly higher rate of being born alive than babies who go through a actual labor and, and vaginal delivery process. You know, there's there's no right or wrong in, in deciding which way to go on that. But for us, it just was so important to me to meet Gideon living and to do whatever I can to mitigate that risk. Mm-hmm. As his mom. Yeah. Even though it meant having an elective C-section, and I knew that that would also, you know, have different health implications for me and, and for, you know, hopeful future pregnancies at that point, that was the only thing that mattered to me. So we decided with my OB support to have an elective C-section to increase the chances of having some time with Gideon living. That was that decision. So going to the hospital, we had dropped Bennett off with Jason's cousin the previous night and we had to be at the hospital at 6.30 in the morning. I just didn't know how long it was going to take, how long it would take to get checked in, how long it would take to get in to actually have the C-section because I'd, I'd heard of, you know, girlfriends who needed C-sections, but if there are other things on the docket, then the C-section can get pushed back. So I just didn't really know how long it was going to take. Mm-hmm. So we got checked in and the palliative care doctor was already there waiting at the check-in desk for us, which was just amazing. And it was interesting because that was actually the only time that we really saw him or needed him the whole time. But just the fact that it meant enough to him to actually be there waiting for us when we checked in was just very encouraging to me. So we got checked in and got in our room and my nurse's name was Christina. She was just amazing. I mean, she was an angel. She was so encouraging and she was positive but also serious. Like she just knew that there w- that this was an important day, you know, in getting us ready and talking to us. It just felt like she understood that and like she respected that and that was just so encouraging to me. So, they got us prepped. You know, I was in my gown and they were doing some monitoring and he was, you know, even kicking the monitor as they were trying to get his heartbeat <laughs> and he was racing around. They couldn't even get a good read on his heartbeat. He was just so active, which was, you know, story of his life. And so it was just funny seeing that happen. And and finally, once the nurses kind of finished all their intake and IVs and everything, they were saying, okay, like it shouldn't be too long. We're just waiting on another mom in the labor and delivery unit who is in labor and she's been laboring all night and we need to wait and see if she needs an emergency C-section or not. If she doesn't, we will come and get you. But if she does, then it's going to push your C-section back. Sorry, I'm going to get a drink of water really quick. No, you're fine. You have me in anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my um, my throat was getting pretty dry. I couldn't imagine how you were feeling in the moment, like not knowing when it was going to happen. I, I say this with, with so much grace and compassion because I, I was that mom with Bennett laboring all night, exhausted and waiting to see if I needed a C-section or, or if I was going to be able to push. I had so much compassion for this mom, but also at the time it felt unfair. <laughs> Honestly, there's someone else having a baby. Like, this is Gideon's birthday. Like, I just, it felt, I I just kind of felt like, okay, all right, like, we'll just wait and see what happens. And I just need to be patient. And we waited in that 
hospital room for quite a while and they had us down on the very end of the hall away from other laboring moms which I really appreciated but it also just kind of felt like like just being sort of cut off mm-hmm. like we were just sort of in our own little world and and I don't say that in a negative way because I we needed that we needed mm-hmm. to be in our own space but it was also a very surreal feeling just sort of waiting there to see if this other mom had her baby and so we would get updates from Christina ever so often she would come in and say, you know, all right, she she still hasn't had her baby yet, so we're still just waiting. And so it was a couple hours, honestly, and we we're sitting there. And all I remember is I was freezing. I know that I was having an adrenaline rush or going into shock or, or something like that because I just, I was physically shaking and could not, I couldn't stop. And so Christina brought in a bunch of blankets and literally I was just sitting there covered in blankets and I was still shivering. And there was just nothing more that we could do. And so Jason and I sat there and we were really just quiet and texting family and sitting there. I was trying to find my resolve. I was kind of bracing myself emotionally, mentally. Mm -hmm. It's sort of one of those things where you're doing what you have to do. I couldn't just duck out. There was no turning back. We were there to deliver Gideon. It was time. That was just so strange just feeling like I was looking down this path of time and just knowing that I could no longer avoid what was coming. And Jason was the only one that could be in the room with you, right? Because of COVID, like you couldn't have your parents or his parents in there? Well, sort of. Yes, Jason was allowed to be there. And the hospital actually also said because of our extraordinary circumstances that they were going to allow one visitor at first And then they finally got permission for two visitors. And so we opted to have both of our moms, which was really, really hard for our dads. I bet that decision was hard in itself. Yes, that was very, very difficult. Um, And at the time, because Jason's mom was going to be flying in from Korea, his dad wasn't going to be able to fly in, but his mom was. And because everything had been scheduled sort of last minute, we weren't even sure if Jason's mom was going to arrive in time. But she did and we were very thankful. And so both of our moms were going to be able to come in, but we opted for them to come up after Gideon was born and to give us a couple hours with him before they came up. Mm. Literally, I know my mom was just in the parking lot with a girlfriend, like (laughs) just waiting. Jason's mom was also just on standby. The the whole family, all of our family and so many friends were just waiting and praying. and, And I know that they were all with us mentally, even as we were in the hospital. Eventually, Christina came in and I I think it was like maybe 10 or 1030 at that point and she said all right we're having to bring the other mom in for a c-section so once her c-section is done then we can get you in I was like okay so they did the other mom c-section and it was very hard because after a little while I could hear a baby in the hallway and I assume that it was that mom's baby after her c-section being brought back to her room. (sighs) That was just hard because I didn't know if Gideon was going to cry. I assumed that he wouldn't because they said that he would really just have very low-level brain function and probably wouldn't make any sound. You know, we just didn't know what he was going to be capable of. Mm -hmm. So that was hard. But then not long after that, Christina and another nurse came back and said, okay, we're ready to prep you. And so just Christina walked back with me into the OR And the anesthesiologist was there um, to do the spinal. And uh, 
I just, you know, they had me lean my forehead on Christina's chest. And it was really hard not having Jason there because I had had an epidural with Bennett for Bennett's labor and delivery. And Jason had been the one to sort of brace me Mm. for that. And so that was hard not having him in the OR. But Christina was great. She was just very comforting in that moment. And finally, when the spinal was done, they had me lay down on the operating table. It just felt like time was slowing. It just felt like everything was so vivid and vibrant. I mean, obviously, an operating room is super bright. And so the lights were so bright. You know, the color of the gowns were suddenly so bright. It just it felt like everything had just gotten so intense So waiting there, you know, they started to prep my belly and wash and get the drape set up. And the whole time I was waiting for Jason to come in and I kept on kind of looking at the door. And but every time it would open, it would be another medical personnel. Uh, Eventually, my OB came in who was going to do the C-section and he came up and he's like, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm okay. I mean, you know, what else do you say in that situation? And he's like, "Okay, well, we're going to get started soon. I was like, "Okay." And um, the anesthesiologist kept checking on me and saying, how are you doing? I was like, I'm okay. I think I was maybe doing some deep breathing just to calm myself. I think that was kind of freaking him out a little bit. So he just wanted to make sure I was okay. But I, I kept on watching and waiting for Jason and he still wasn't coming and still wasn't coming. And, and they did the whole clamp test to make sure that my spinal was working well so that I didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Like after a couple minutes, finally, they brought Jason in and Jason said that they had already started when he came in. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was a little uh, taken aback by that, that they had already started. But I guess now hearing stories from other moms who've had C-sections, I guess that's, you know, not uncommon. A lot of moms don't even realize when they've started the C-section. Mm-hmm. I definitely had no idea. So Jason sat down on a stool by my head and something that was really amazing was that we went through Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. They are a nonprofit that does um, bereavement photography for parents in hospitals. Even though we couldn't have our photographer in the operating room, there was a nurse who had just completed a Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photography certification of some kind. Because she was a nurse, she was allowed to be in the operating room and take pictures for us. That was just such a gift. That's amazing. Oh, it was it was truly, truly amazing that we were able to have someone in there taking pictures for us, especially because as it turns out, that was when Gideon was the most interactive with us. But I'll get to that. So we were waiting and the anesthesiologist was kind of giving me some play by play by looking over the curtain. So he was saying like, all right, they're almost there. All right, they're going for baby. All right, baby's out. When he said baby's out, um, I'll never forget this. I heard Christina, my nurse, say happy birthday, baby. And sorry. No, you're fine. That's beautiful. Yeah. He was born at 11.04 a.m. They whisked him over and they really quick put a hat on him. And I mean, within seconds, he was in Jason's arms. And um, when he turned around, I, you know, we had masks on, but he had tears in his eyes. (sighs) That just got me. Um, 
I was really jealous that Jason got to hold him first, but I also understood because I got to carry him for, (laughs) you know, the six, seven months that I had him in my belly. And so that was okay with me. But Jason said that he actually got to see Gideon take a big breath, a big shuddery breath. Gideon had his eyes open, which we weren't even sure if he was going to. And he was just staring at everything. I mean, just taking (laughs) us in. He was staring at Jason. He was so peaceful and focused. I mean, it was amazing. We felt like we were seeing him. And so as Jason held him, you know, Gideon was just nestled in little blankets and he had his little hat on and Jason turned him so that he could look at me. And we were both just saying, hi, baby. Hi, Gideon. And we were just talking to him. And it felt like almost almost like a moment from a movie where suddenly everything else that's, you know, there can be all of this other stuff happening around you, but it's like that's all just in shadows, in a fog in the background. And the only thing that we could see was Gideon. There we were, just the three of us huddled up together in in just a little huddle behind that curtain, just soaking in Gideon. And we just kept on talking to him and whispering to him. And eventually Christina came over and she was like, do you want to help me put him on your chest? And I was like, yes. And so she kind of helped take the swaddles off of him. And and I kind of pulled my gown down so I could do skin to skin just right there on the operating table. I mean, while they were stitching me up. Um Oh, it, it was amazing having Gideon on my chest. I mean, he I he was kind of laying a little sideways. And so I was supporting his little head with my right hand. And with my left hand, I was just stroking his cheek. And as I was stroking him over and over and over, just the only things that I kept saying to him were, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I love you. I'm so proud of you. It sounds like that's where he was supposed to be. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You're totally fine. As I was stroking his little cheek, his eyes just kind of slowly closed and it was just like he was falling asleep. He was still with us at the time. He was just so peaceful and content and it felt like he knew that his mommy was holding him. He knew that he was safe and loved and protected and I just, I will forever cherish that memory. It was so special. After a little while, I did get nauseated, kind of dry heaved on the table, which was just so um, distracting. It just kind of brought us back to reality of, oh, gosh, there's still a surgery going on. And so Jason just kind of held Gideon more while I just kind of regained my composure. They had to stick some oxygen in my nose and get a cooling cloth on my head. But then when everything was done and they had me stitched up, they were able to put Gideon back on my chest. They brought the curtain down and moved me onto a bed from the operating table very gently. And I just had Gideon on me the whole time. And he was still just so peaceful. I mean, he just felt like he belonged there. Like that was just where he needed to be. He was just so (laughs) snuggly and tiny. I mean, by the time that they weighed him, we found out that he he was two pounds, 15 ounces at 34 weeks. Aww. And he was also 15 and a half inches long, which is pretty long for oh, wow. a baby yeah. with anencephaly. We were very surprised at that. 
They took us back to the same room that we had been before moving us to mother and baby. There, we were met by the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photographer who was able to come and the chaplain. We just were soaking in time with Gideon and um, enjoying this special time. And at this point, I had turned Gideon back over in my arm, in the crook of my arm. And so he, he, he'd opened his eyes again in the process of us moving him. And he was just staring up at us again. And it was so beautiful because he, he really didn't move or make any sound. It sounds like he really communicated with his eyes. Yeah. Looking into his eyes, it just, it felt like we were seeing him, his little personality, his little spirit, his little warrior spirit. Um, There was definitely such a light in his eyes because it felt like we could just see the light behind his eyes. I also knew when he had passed, when he was gone. We had called in the chaplain to do the dedication with us and we had set up a Zoom like group call with extended family and immediate family who couldn't be there so that it kind of felt like they could meet Gideon Mm -hmm. while we were doing the dedication. And so we just kind of held Gideon up to show everyone (laughs) and we were so proud. And we did the, the dedication with the chaplain, which was so intentional and meaningful and personalized. It was towards the end of the dedication, just right after that, as I was looking at Gideon, it kind of felt like the light was gone from his eyes. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure because I kept sort of massaging his eyelids closed to kind of help keep his eyes moist. And so I I called uh, a nurse over who was nearby and and just said, could you check for his heartbeat again? Because they had checked for his heartbeat in the operating room and already his heart rate was down to just 40 beats per minute Mm. when we were in the operating room still. The nurse came over and checked. She said, "I'm, I'm not quite sure. Let me go get Christina. And Christina came in and checked, but I knew as she kind of held up her little stethoscope for a minute and then looked up and she already had tears in her eyes. She just said, I'm so sorry. I can't find a heartbeat. And that was a shocking moment, a moment that we knew was coming, a moment that I had played out in my head a thousand times over the previous months, but I just had no idea what it would actually look like, Mm -hmm. what it would actually feel like. That moment, it felt like falling. Mm. And so Jason scooped up Gideon at that time and just started sobbing. I was crying and the three of us just kind of huddled on that bed, just crying. And I think that everybody else in that room just left. They just gave us space. Um, It just so happened that our moms came in at that time. I I don't know how long it had been, but we were still grieving as they came in. They hadn't known at the time that Gideon had already passed, but then when they came in, they knew. Mm -hmm. I just remember when Jason passed Gideon back to me and I just was rocking him and I kept saying, oh, honey, oh, honey, almost, almost like I was trying to soothe him or like comfort him in death. I have no explanation for why that was suddenly what sprung to my subconscious, but I just I just remember rocking him and holding him and saying, oh, honey, oh, honey. Mama instinct. Yeah. So after a little while, Jason brought Gideon over to the little weighing station. And at that point, they were able to weigh him and take his measurements and get him dressed in a little green onesie that we had picked out for him, which was so adorable because it was a a preemie size 
onesie and it still just looked so big on him. I mean, he just was absolutely <laughs> swallowed by that preemie onesie. The rest of the time that we had with Gideon that day was just memorizing him. I felt like I just needed to remember every single inch of him. And we took a lot more photos with him and had some some sweet paraphernalia. We had a blanket with his name and we had a little letter board to put his details like his name and his birth weight and everything that we would do to celebrate any baby that we have. We wanted to do for Gideon. We were so intent on that. I even brought a book, a children's book into the hospital to read to him. I I chose um, God Gave Us Heaven. Mm -hmm. And so we read that to him and we recorded it and it was so special. Yes, his little spirit was gone. His little soul was gone. But we were still trying to make memories with him, even if it was just his little body in our arms. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they moved us over to mother and baby, the mother and baby wing of the hospital. And again, I had requested for a room kind of away from other moms and babies. One thing that I should mention is that I had wondered if the nurse who took care of me when I had delivered Bennett was still there or happened to be working. Her name is Nancy and she had just been amazing. She's been a nurse for like 40 years (laughs) and she had just, I mean, I'd really connected with her when I had given birth to my oldest, Bennett. And so I had just asked if she was still in the hospital. Christina said, yeah, actually, I know who you're talking about. She's working right now. I was like, please, can I see her? And she was like, yeah. I was like, I don't even know if Nancy's going to remember me. But my labor and delivery with Bennett had not been easy. And I'm sure that, you know, everybody says that. But I I wondered if Nancy would remember me and whether or not she really did. She, She said that she did. And she was so excited to see us. And I just remember Nancy putting both hands on either side of my cheeks and looking me straight in the eyes and saying, you can do this, mama. You are so strong. And it was just so, it was kind of a full circle moment of the nurse who had brought me through the journey of delivering my firstborn and then coming here to strengthen me for my secondborn, even if it meant losing him, was just so amazing. And so, yeah, Nancy was amazing. So Christina brought us over to the mother and baby side. And every time that they bring a mom and baby, new baby, over to mother and baby side, they play a little lullaby. Christina asked if we wanted the lullaby played for when we went over with Gideon. And I said, yes, to me, I just wanted to celebrate my baby. And so as we were walking over, they played the lullaby and I was holding Gideon and just so proud. They got us in our room and they pulled out what's called a cuddle cot. A cuddle cot is basically a cooling cot for babies who have died or were stillborn. It basically keeps their little bodies cold so that they are preserved for longer and that the the signs of death don't start to show too soon mm. or, or as, as long as they can kind of keep it off. Christina took the cooling pad, placed it under Gideon's back, and then wrapped him in a swaddle. Then I was able to have him like I was able to hold him and have him in the little bassinet next to me. And it looked like aside from the, you know, the cooling tubes coming out from 
behind him for the pad. I mean, he just looked like he might as well have been sleeping. That was just so beautiful. We got beautiful photos with him. We were able to rub him down with some lotion that I had bought like a particular uh, scented lotion. That was a tip that I saw on the anencephaly support groups that I was a part of to bring a lotion that I had picked out just for him that I could put on him after I gave him his bath and he would then have this um, particular smell and then and in the you know weeks, months, years to come, I would always have that lotion and I can always smell him. Aww. I mean, I literally have the lotion on right now even. So as the evening went on, we had more of a rotation of nurses on the mother and baby side. So I, I honestly don't remember many of their names except for one, Maynell. I really appreciated that both Maynell and Christina, even though he had already passed, they were talking to him like they would any baby. I mean, they were saying like, <laughs> oh, here you go, honey. Oh, you know, come here, sweetie. Like that was just so sweet for my mama heart to see these nurses still treating him like he was a baby. We went through the night and the next morning, his little body had not changed much, but he was definitely colder. That was hard because I was starting to feel like I want to remember him as my baby and I, I don't want to remember him changed too much. Eventually, Jason made the arrangements for the morgue to come pick him up in the afternoon. That was significantly harder than even hearing that he had died. The last hour before the morgue was scheduled to come, we just kind of stayed huddled as a little family just on the couch by the window, just in the sunlight. I mean, I was just holding Gideon and Jason was holding me and I felt like this desperation to soak him in because suddenly it just felt like the clock was ticking. I knew that the time was coming where I would have to give my baby away. <sighs> that was just very, very difficult. It was easily the hardest thing I have ever, ever done. Um, a nurse had come in and told us when the morgue was there and that they were just outside the door and that they would come in when we were ready. And so we took a moment to just pray together. And through tears, we allowed the, the morgue personnel to come in. I just remember just kind of tucking Gideon's little swaddle around him, almost like bundling him up for a big trip or something, like getting him ready for like a school field trip or something. I just wanted to make sure that he was just nice and perfect. And when I brought him over to the morgue person, I just handed him over and I said, please take care of him. He just kind of nodded and, and they left. And that was the hardest thing that I have ever done was give my baby over to someone else knowing that I was never going to see him again. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like the edges of my vision were just going black. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't hear anything except for my own tears. Mm -hmm. I might have even been screaming. I don't remember. Our moms came back at some point. We just all cried mm. and I just I felt exhausted at that point I just the exhaustion not just of that day not just of the last 36 hours but the exhaustion of five months just built up in that moment after who knows how long the nurse who was taking care of us at the time came back I had been refusing anything stronger than Tylenol 
up until that point because I didn't want any sense of fogginess or any senses to be dulled, even if it meant pain from my C-section. I just didn't want to be affected by anything worse than Tylenol. And when the nurse came back in, I just said, I'm ready for the narcotics now. She understood and she went and I got some stronger pain meds at that point that really helped ease uh, both the physical pain and just my sensations of what was happening. The rest of that day and that night was just kind of going through the motions. Our baby was gone. But I swear every single person that came into that room who hadn't yet met Gideon, every nurse, the lactation consultant, I was constantly asking people, do you want to see a picture? Can I show you a picture of Gideon? Because I didn't want them to kind of talk like Gideon was an event that had come and gone. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. They were very respectful. But I just was so desperate that everybody who came into that room knew exactly the baby who had just been here and knew my baby. They were so sweet and so genuinely interested. And yes, oh my gosh, I would love to see a picture. And we told them his name and they're like, oh, Gideon, that's such a sweet name. And aside from that, the next morning, my mom had dropped off a bear because I just couldn't bear being wheeled out of the hospital without Gideon in my arms. Mm -hmm. And so my mom had brought this big blue stuffed bear <laughs> with a little bow on it. And that was going to be what I was going to carry out of the hospital. Jason had to go get the car. And I just remember sitting there in this giant wheelchair waiting for Jason to pull up with the car with this, you know, stranger monitoring my wheelchair with this big bear and still feeling so empty. There was this physical absence from my arms that even though I had something literally in my arms, the weight of Gideon's absence was so heavy. And so Jason finally pulled up the car and the guy wheeled me out. I got into the car and I had been kind of trying to hold it together a little bit because I didn't want to break down just in public. Finally, when I got in the car, we drove away. I just started sobbing. I just let it all out. Just leaving the hospital without my baby. It felt so wrong. It felt unnatural. And uh, it's not an experience I would wish on anyone. Not anyone. No one should ever have to leave their hospital without their baby. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that so many women do. And it was heartbreaking. It absolutely shattered my heart. <sighs> So that's my story. It, it, that's how it ends. I mean, how else could it end? But we're so thankful for the time that we had with Gideon. Mm -hmm. Every second of those just over two hours that we had with him until he died at 1.11 p.m. made the five months worth it. <laughs> and I would never do anything different. Thank you so much for sharing the story. I think that this is another way that Gideon can live on and teach us. Well, it means a lot to me because I a lot of people ask how I'm doing. Very few people ask about Gideon's story. And I'm sure it's because they're not sure if I want to tell his story. But I do. And it means a lot to me that you that you wanted to help share his story. I mean, even from what you said there, you can tell how much of an impact that he's had. And I think that he could have an impact on even more people by you telling his story and sharing it. I did want to go back and talk a little bit more about some of the experiences you had with some of the healthcare workers there. So throughout the story, you were interacting with healthcare professionals a lot and you had to make some pretty hard decisions. I know you mentioned a few positive interactions that you had with healthcare workers like Nancy or Christina. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the harder interactions that you had with healthcare providers? And when you felt like that, what was your course of action? How did you resolve those difficult 
relationships? Yeah. So the maternal fetal medicine specialist who um, I kind of skipped over this part of the story, but back when we had Gideon's diagnosis confirmed, I had a scan with the MFM and then he came in to meet with us and just see if we had any questions. And at the time, I was still trying to decide between a C-section or vaginal delivery based on what I was hearing and statistics. And I asked the MFM what would be safer for C-section versus vaginal delivery. And he kind of frowned and he was like, well, safer for who? I said, well, safer, safer for my baby, safer for Gideon so that we can meet him alive. And he said, well, what would it matter? It's not going to change the outcome. Mm -hmm. And that just made me really angry. I felt like he was very dismissive. I felt like it showed that he really didn't see Gideon as a baby, Mm -hmm. but rather a terminal diagnosis. That just was very upsetting to me. It definitely shut down the conversation. It felt like my desire to have time with my baby didn't really matter. So that was very, very upsetting. And I later talked to my OB about that and basically asked not to work with that MFM anymore. I didn't want to interact with him anymore if that's how he was going to view my baby. Mm-hmm. And my OB was very respectful of that. He understood. I do know that my OB continued to consult the MFM on my case just because I did need an MFM involved, but I never worked with him personally again. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. I'm not normally someone who voices stuff like that if it's going to rock the boat. That was kind of the first time that I had had to to advocate kind of strongly for something like that. And I definitely feel like I learned from that experience the importance of being an advocate, being a partner in my own health care and, and in the health care of my baby. Mm-hmm. That was one situation. Um, and then the other that comes to mind was at my postpartum checkup. So just for a little bit of context to make things even crazier, um, my husband had a job change the month after Gideon was born. And so we moved from Indiana to Michigan. And therefore, my six-week, eight-week checkup had been at a brand new OB in Michigan. Mm. And they they knew my case. They had my files. They had all my information. But when I went into the waiting room, the receptionist who was checking me in said, oh, congratulations. Mm. And it just really took me off guard. And, and I said, what? And she was like, you just had a baby, didn't you? And my voice kind of caught in my throat and tears kind of came up. And I just said, um, actually, he died. And she just looked crestfallen. And she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I I felt like I had to comfort her and be like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and that just was very awkward for me. And then the same thing happened again with the nurse who was taking me back, you know, as as the nurse came to get me from the waiting room and we were walking back into the, you know, checkup room. She said, oh, congratulations. And I was like, again. And again, she was so embarrassed and said something about, oh, I didn't see anything on your chart. And I don't know if there's you know, if that's maybe just, you know, a flaw with that particular office or what. But I just I I wish that there had been a better indicator on my record somewhere that my baby had died. I I just really wish that they could have been a little more aware of that so that, you know, I didn't get congratulations at my postpartum checkup. Yeah, that's really hard. I feel like it could be so simple, like to change the color of your name on the EHR or add a little bear at the top, just something to help people recognize your situation and to help them be more sensitive towards it. Yeah, just something like that. That would have been really helpful. I really appreciate you talking about these situations because, I mean, that's what this podcast is about. I hope 
we can raise awareness for these situations and hopefully improve them. And I know that from a medical standpoint, we don't always understand what the patient is thinking and we can definitely say the wrong thing sometimes. So that's why it's important to bring awareness to these situations and talk about them. And then another thing is, I know that there are specific words and phrases that sometimes mean something other than what people mean them to mean. So I was wondering if you could talk about a few of the phrases that you prefer to use or prefer not to use. Yeah. Well, one one thing that is really pretty unanimous in the grief community that I've gotten to know is that grief is, I mean, a lifelong journey. It's not something that you get over or are done with. It can change. It can look different. It's not something that you get over or move on from or move past. And I've only had a handful of people use that terminology with me, but it it always just rubs me the wrong way because I'm never going to get over this because I'm never going to get over my baby. Mm -hmm. He's always going to be a part of our family. He's always going to be a part of, you know, our memory, our love. I'm never going to get over my love for him. And so I'm I'm never going to also get over my grief for him. It'll just look different. So that's one thing. And the other thing that is really kind of more personal for me, I, I hear mixed messages on this. So this is definitely not a unanimous across the board. Every mom who, you know, has had a, a baby die or, or suffered stillbirth or, or miscarriage or any kind of loss like this is the term loss. I kind of try to avoid saying that I lost Gideon. And I might have even said it in the podcast just because, you know, it's a comfortable phrasing that we fall into. But mm-hmm. really, it, in my mind, when I'm being intentional and thinking about it. He's not lost. I didn't lose him. I know where he is. I believe he's in heaven with the Lord. But I, I recognize that there's a place for it. You know, we even the month that we just had in October for pregnancy and infant loss awareness month, right there in the name. And so it's it's not an across the board, I never want to use that word. I never want to use that phrase. But just whenever possible, I try to say that Gideon died or that he passed because that's the reality of it. I didn't lose him in the grocery store. I didn't lose, you know, he died. And I feel like saying the reality of it just kind of feels more honest to me, at least. But I know not everyone feels that way. Well, thank you for sharing that. And like I've mentioned a hundred times in this podcast already, thank you again so much for being willing to share yours and Gideon's story with us. I think that this is another way that Gideon is still with us and can teach us these things through his story and your story. Yeah, it, it's hard to talk about, but it's it's honest. It's reality. Yeah. I think something that your story has really shown to me is I don't think I understood near how many difficult points there are throughout the process where, oh, there's a hard decision here, but then two weeks later, it's still another hard decision. And a week later, it's still another difficult decision. So I have a lot of respect for you that you are willing to talk about it and are willing to share your story because there's a lot of pain points through it. I feel like it's changed the way that I look at situations. And and I feel like someone going through a similar situation as you is going to be able to learn a lot from your story. And I also think it's going to help healthcare workers like me or just anyone better understand what someone is feeling when they're in this type of situation. And that that's just invaluable to be able to better understand that. Well, thank you. I'm so proud of Gideon and I love talking about him. So thank you again. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us. (music) 
I felt like that was a really good conversation, and I really believe that Gideon is teaching us even though he's not here. I'm so thankful that Lindsay was willing to open up and share their story. I hope it helped increase your understanding of situations like this. And don't forget to subscribe to be notified when more episodes are released. To end, I wanted to read this poem by Amy Carmichael, and Lindsay gave me permission to read it at the end. Whether you're a religious person or not, it's a really beautiful poem, and I think it encapsulates Gideon's story well. So this is A Warrior Soul by Amy Carmichael. O Lord, this Gideon make a warrior soul, and when for thy name's sake he pays the toll, and goes without the camp, let not his spirit damp, not solitary he who follows thee. O perish coward fears, our battles won, without shed blood or tears, let not thy son count any pain too sore, that Christ his captain bore. Would he choose ease who knows what his Lord chose? No. Never, by thy grace, shall that choice be. O reinforce and brace thy son that he shall be thy warrior and more than conqueror. So fortify each hour, for thine's the power.